Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Real Estate Milestones. Today, we have Zach Happenstall, who's the CEO and co-founder of Rise48. Um, Rise48 is the largest owner of multifamily real estate in Phoenix, if I'm not mistaken. Over the, over the last year. Yeah, not not overall. I haven't been around long enough. But yeah, we've been fortunate to have some scale. Awesome. So you've acquired over $1.8 billion across Phoenix and starting a little bit in Dallas, which we're going to talk about. But um, I first met Zach at a conference after... Hearing his, him talk about Rise for Day, I was like, wow, I've never heard of a company who has grown with this speed, with this kind of competitive advantage, with this kind of future. And um, it's been really exciting to follow along, get to know you, Zach, and get to know your company. So appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, no, thanks so much, Ben. Really appreciate you having me. And yeah, I think we met a couple of years ago and it's, it's good to, to finally get on the show. It's such a long guest list that you have. I've just been waiting, waiting, waiting. <laughs> Appreciate you getting me in. Of course, of course. I would always, you know, be able to find some room for you. But uh, okay, you yeah. sneak. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's start with uh, what's your first milestone in real estate? Yeah, so I don't really have like much of a real estate background to be honest. I mean, I guess if you want to talk about the very first milestone, I bought my own single family house, my primary residence, when I was twenty three, and that was like my first exposure ever. My parents never talked about real estate, anything like that. And then, you know, I guess for multifamily, I bought, we bought our first property in 2019, a 30, 60 unit deal. But I would say, you know, kind of buying my own home was really a, a first milestone for real estate period. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a good one. I guess it has to start somewhere, but um, in a very short amount, of time, I don't think there's any company in the country that's grown to $1.8 billion of acquisitions from the time you started. So what, what happened from not knowing anything about real estate to, you know, having one of the fast growing countries or companies in the, in the country? Yeah, no, great question. I think it was a bunch of things that all kind of happened, you know, around the same time. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's tough to get started initially, you know, in breaking into, you know, commercial multifamily um, because you have to source these deals through the brokers, you know, you have to raise money, which is its own challenge in itself, you know, very difficult. And so, you know, the first deal, you know, we just kind of bootstrapped that thing and um, tried to take it down however we could. 36 unit, you know, 3.3, million. We had to raise about 1.4 million of equity. Um, and we tried to syndicate it, but we couldn't because we didn't have any investors interested because we had no track record. So we we did what we had to do, you know, brought on a 1031 exchange. Um, and then, you know, that started to give us experience of how to, you know, execute a value add plan firsthand and manage con contractors and, you know, just, just over understand all the operational intricacies that are involved with asset management. And we really didn't make any money for like the two and first two and a half, three years. Okay. So at one point, you know, I was a sponsor and, you know, quote unquote owned $35 million worth of real estate for properties. And I was dead broke. I had like $12,000 of credit card debt because I put all my money in the deals to invest in them. And because of the preferred return, you know, all the money, all the cash flow goes to the investors, right? We don't really make money until you sell them. And so um, I think the biggest things, there's a, there's a number of factors that allowed us to scale. But, you know, around the same time, we sold our first deal. 
in, you know, fall of 2020. So when you sell a deal, you know, it gives you track record, right? You can say you've gone full cycle, you've executed the plan, you got a strong return. When you sell deals, you start to attract more capital. Around that same time, we started really developing our relationships with brokers because we had bought a number of deals that were on the market, showed that we can perform, execute the plan and, and build that credibility. So now we're getting off-market deal flow from brokers. Now we're getting more equity demand because we're selling deals. And at the end of the day, if you want to boil it down to a simplest form, you need deals and money, right? To buy these deals. And so those two things were, were critical. As we were buying new deals, we started taking an acquisition fee, which is, you know, very industry standard. And we reinvested all of those fees back into the company. So we converted to an S corp in 2020 and we were allowed, we, we allowed ourselves to start taking salaries to cover our, our own expenses. And beginning of 2021, started hiring staff, right? So we first took, we hired asset management staff, some back office staff. We took construction management in-house and just kept building infrastructure, thinking long-term, you know, instead of taking those fees for ourselves, just put everything back into the company, keep building it out. We started our property management company in 2021, right? So we became vertically integrated and we're able to take full control of, of all the leasing, the maintenance, the managers. And then we started buying all the materials directly wholesale. And so we have a long-term goal here. Um, and I know that, you know, some people on the, probably on the outside, look at us and say, Hey, you guys have grown really fast. You know, you're lucky the market was strong or your transactional mindset. And it's, it's not the truth at all. I mean, obviously the market has been strong, but we also have probably the strongest returns in that same time frame that I've seen from anybody else. So there's plenty of other people that are doing what we were doing in the same time frame. And we've been able to really build out infrastructure operationally. So the majority of our time and our resources goes towards operations, right? And so I think all these things combined, Ben, just kind of just started to kind of all develop and help us to scale where we could, you know, buy a lot more deals and sell deals. Yeah, absolutely. And so people, a lot of companies in the industry throw around the word, the word vertical integration, right? Like, you know, everyone wants to say they're vertically integrated. Sometimes that means they have some property management capacities. It, it can mean a lot of different things, but out of anyone I've ever met, you're, you're, I think you're the only company who I could say, or at least that I, I know personally, that is truly vertically integrated in terms of you have, I guess it's hard to say. I mean, maybe you couldn't say vertically integrated because you have brokers that help you source the deals. But in terms of right. the operations aspect, you got the management, you have sourcing of materials, you have more, you have more than that. I guess, I want, can you walk me through the scope yeah. of your company and the vertical integration, how it all works together to give you that competitive advantage that allows you to generate these incredible returns? Yeah, it's a great, great question, Ben. So, so to give people an idea, I mean, the majority, I mean, I don't know the exact statistics. I would say, you know, 80 to 90% or more of, of sponsors or general partners for these deals are using what's called a third-party management company, right? And so basically you're, you're paying a monthly fee, usually 3% of the monthly collections of rent to a third-party company. And the third-party company employs the on-site leasing agent, um, leasing agent, maintenance staff, manager, and they're running your property, right? And that's what most people do. They also are relying on that third-party property management company to do all of the construction management. Construction management, Ben, is even more critical than property management. This is really the key. This is what we focused on first because we were using third-party property management and we were allowing them to do the construction management, meaning construction management means that they're sourcing, bidding out, and managing subcontractors on site. Okay, the roofers, the plumbers, electricians, your construction crews who are doing your interior renovations you know, for flooring, countertops, et cetera. And we quickly realized all these property manager companies tell you 
that they can do construction management because that's their high profit margin part of their business. But none of them that we've experienced are good at it. Okay. Because it's not what they do. And so our very first property, we realized quickly that they're running behind schedule. They're not hitting budget. And so we had to really take control, you know, and I was at the property, you know, chewing out vendors and, and really take control of that to make sure these things are getting renovated on schedule on budget and they're doing what they're supposed to do. So the first thing we did, I think this was our second or third employee. Our, our first employee was an asset manager. Okay. So we hired an asset manager who she was actually um, our regional manager at the third party management company we worked with for over a year. So we took her from the third party property management company. We then hired a construction manager whose job was to source, bid out and manage vendors daily. Okay. Cause we needed staff to really make sure that these renovations were going according to plan. So even though you're using third party construction inside the unit, you know, our guy is there watching him and the one finding them, making sure they're staying on schedule on budget. That was key. Okay. So construction management is really important for your exterior CapEx and for your interior innovations. The next step was that we, uh, we brought property management in house, right? And property management is a, it's a big undertaking, you know, because basically there's a lot of staff that people don't think of that you need. Okay. You know, mainly accounting, you need like very good accounting staff. that's going to do all these, all these things in the back office. So you have to have, you know, that's a, your corporate back office staff, so to speak, we invested a little bit over 800K of our own personal cash into the property management company. It took almost a year to break even. So we were fronting, you know, salaries and all the things that, you know, you need to do a property management company. And we had never initially planned to bring property management in-house, okay? Um, we were thinking third-party management makes sense because there's less overhead and, you know, less headache. What started to happen is that after COVID, you know, a lot of industries, this was the case, you know, people didn't really want to work. It's hard to find good staff, and so the good staff was just getting picked off, you know, and being paid more money. So we were using third-party management. And in a matter of five months, we had four different on-site managers turn over and go to different property management companies because other property management companies would show up on site and just offer the staff that was working on our property. They're not our employees or they're the third-party management employees, but they'd offer more money. They just leave. Okay. So we're like, we can't have this. You know, we have almost 2000 units. We said, let's start our own property management company. Let's offer the most competitive compensation in the market. Let's offer the best benefits in the market so we can recruit and retain the best people. Because the thing about property management, property management is a crappy business model. Okay. It doesn't make you a lot of money. And so these third-party companies that their whole business is property management, they can't afford to pay top compensation because they need to have a profit margin, right? For us, we're like, you know what? We don't need the property management company to really make a lot of money. We just want it to break even and support the operations of the asset. Because if the asset performs well, investors will be happy, we'll get good results, and then we'll make a lot of money on our high profit margin business, which is the real estate company, Rise 48 Equity, right? So we cover 100% of all of our employees' medical, dental, vision, 50% of all their dependents. We give them the most competitive salaries, the most competitive bonus structures. Um, and so it allows us to really recruit and retain the best people. So we then took property management in-house, and it's just, it's critical, Ben, because whenever you're doing renovations, <clears throat> there's always a divide between construction management and property management. And we had this divide when we had our own construction management, but we're using third-party property management because these construction management guys are renovating units and they have to be in constant communication with the on-site staff because these on-site staff, 
they have to be, they're the ones leasing the units and they're giving the expectation to tenants of when they can move in and things change, right? So you have to be able to manage those expectations for new tenants. And even if it goes, even if you're turning a unit, meaning you're not doing a full renovation, but you're going to, you know, if somebody moved out, you're going to put new, new carpet and paint it takes a few days and lease that thing up. So you have to have those two things in motion, especially right now, property management is so critical because organic rent growth has just decelerated significantly across the country. Okay. And so you have to be able to renovate these units on schedule, on budget, and you have to be able to hit your pro forma rents. So operations and leasing are critical. So because we own the property management company, you know, we can give very lucrative bonuses to our leasing staff to incentivize them to lease up these units, you know, and so people can make more money at our company than pretty much anywhere else in Phoenix for property management, you know, if they're hitting their goals. And we want people to know that and that word spread. So anyways, to, to answer your question, it was construction management, property management, right around the same time as property management. We had kind of already started to dabble with buying our own materials directly wholesale from overseas. We weren't doing it portfolio wide. We were kind of testing it out around that same time in 2021, we started buying, you know, more wholesale. And so basically we have a relationship with a manufacturer who has plants overseas, you know, Taiwan, Malaysia, Shanghai, uh, Vietnam, and they're manufacturing everything inside that unit, private label, shipping it overseas. They have two warehouses in the U S one is in Phoenix, one is in Dallas. And so basically they have 24 hour crews. They have a day crew and a night crew, you know, I've toured both warehouses and met with the owner. The owner is a friend of mine and one of our investors now. Um, and so they've got crews going where basically they're just bringing these shipments of raw materials and they're building custom kits of what that unit needs. So when we go through a due diligence on the front end, inspections of a new property, they are walking the units with us and they're taking measurements of every single floor plan. Okay. The large one bedroom, the small one bedroom, the two bedroom. And then basically in their warehouse, they're building these kits where they're going to drop two pallets inside of the unit. Our guys go up and open up that pallet, unwrap it, and it has the exact amount of vinyl plank flooring that's already been cut and measured for that floor plan. Okay, it has the exact measurements for the cabinet boxes, which have already been assembled. And they, all they do is hang the boxes. It has all the baseboard, the exact amount of hardware, the faucets, you know, everything you can imagine, the lighting package. And so everything is in that unit, custom measured for that unit. They do the prefabrication of the quartz countertops on site at the property, right? So they're delivering the quartz slab and then they're doing prefab right there, cutting the quartz and, and putting it into the unit. And so it allows us to develop like this assembly line type of process where we can just have a blueprint where we stamp out the same exact scope over and over. And what it's allowed us to do is not only do we have a much higher level scope than pretty much all of our competition, because most 80s vintage value add people are resurfacing countertops, painting cabinets. We have a higher level scope at a cheaper cost, but we control our cost, right? So we're spending like 15 to 15,000 to 16,500 per unit. Um, and that's just like a fixed cost. And, you know, we don't have to worry about that, you know, going over budget. We've renovated over a thousand plus units the last 24 months, and every single unit has hit our budget. Okay. So we now have that same supply chain, same process in Dallas. And we've kind of been able to build that out where it's very efficient. Um, so that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. Yeah. So I just want to put it into context for how like special and important this is. Everyone who puts together real estate deals can say what their assumptions are, can give you a model and say, this is how much things cost. This is how much things cost. This is how long it's going to take. This is, you know, who the property manager is going to be. What What is the incredible part about what Riseberry has done is that you can now 
tell say this is exactly how much it will cost. This is not an assumption. Like we know how much this costs. We're gonna yep. bake in we may bake in a little extra in case something goes wrong, but we have such a high degree of certainty this is gonna happen. And same with the duration. So as we know, we're gonna talk about debt pretty soon. A construction loan or a bridge loan, every month you take to come every month that your project goes over your expectation, you have to pay more in interest. Just time is money and you're just burning it. Right. You're taking too much time. If you could control the time that a, that a renovation takes you. And I mean, in terms of some of the turnarounds you've had in your most recent dispositions, that's like an incredible advantage too. So um, in terms of all of this coming right. together, that real estate is just balancing risk. You know, what are the risks? Let's make sure you have a return over it. In terms of mitigating risk, you mitigate a lot of risk by knowing and having certainty, which makes it able, makes you able to do more deals with more certainty, provide better quality experience for the, for your customers. And when things maybe turn around, the market's not as hot, you still have this competitive advantage, which some people who are just guessing and getting lucky are not, you know, or don't get this advantage. So um, I guess on that note, I just want to bring that into context of, of, you know, that being competitive advantage. No, you're right. You're right, Ben. Yeah. And I think you mentioned, you know, we have, we have the assurance that we're going to hit our prices for the renovations and the CapEx. We also have the assurance that we're going to hit our operating expense assumptions, right? Because we own the management company. And so we're going to make sure that we hit all those line items for payroll, marketing, admin, maintenance. We're going to make sure we all hit them because we own the management company. That's why we started it, right? Whereas when you use the third-party PM, they give you a pro forma budget and they almost never hit it honestly, things always change. Right. And it's like, you don't control that company. You can complain to them all you want, but they're used to their clients complaining and then, and they just push back. It is what it is. I mean, that's just how these things work. So yeah, it, it makes a big difference. And I think even now, especially having the construction control, the supply chain control is even more important because most operators right now that I've talked to in the major markets are actually slowing or stopping their renovations. Okay. Because they, they don't have control of the supply chain. Supplies have gotten more expensive and they're trying to maintain higher occupancy. The problem is, is that you cannot rely on organic rent growth to increase your rents and push your NOI, your net operating income. Okay, the whole, the whole premise of these value add plans is to push NOI so you can increase the value, get a strong return for your investors. We're actually going the opposite direction. We've increased the velocity of renovations across the portfolio because we know we have the the infrastructure to, to crank through it. And we know we need to force the appreciation so that even if interest rates do not come down the next two or three years, we've at least increased NOI, which allows us to qualify for more loan proceeds so we can refinance out of these initial bridge loans and still be in a good, in good position for our investors. So like last year, we were innovating between 50 to 100 units a month and we weren't even going full speed. The last few years, We'll buy a deal, renovate like 20 to 50% of the units, and then we stop like in the first 12 months and we, we leave meat on the bone or value add for the next guy. And we show them, hey, we got this $300 rental increase. You can renovate the other 50% and get this return for you. And we sell the deal early, right? Kind of like you were saying, we collapse the time frame. Um, but now <clears throat> organic rent growth has slowed significantly. Our model has always been that we're gonna renovate all the units, right? And so now we're putting that test to the test, so to speak, you know? So we're renovating all the units to maximize NOI. We just renovated 240 units in February. We're doing another 200 units here in March. We're gonna be between at least 150 to 250 units a month, each month this year in 2023, because we're cranking through renovations and we're still having no issues 
hitting and exceeding our projected rents, even in this downturn. Okay, tenants are still willing to pay more for a higher quality finish that has quartz countertops, stainless steel appliances, brand new boxes. It's a, it's a class A finish, but it's in a you know a workforce housing type of product, which is still affordable. And right now, to give people an idea, Ben, we have over 5,500 units in Phoenix. Our average rent is like twelve dollars to $1,300 a month. So it's still very affordable relative to you know what, what people are paying for class A, of course, what people are paying for homes, things like that. So we feel insulated in this space. And the ability to renovate units on schedule, on budget, force appreciation is the difference right now be between whether you'll survive or literally just go out of business the next two years. Because a lot of these groups are, are not going to do well. They're not going to survive if you can't renovate units. So that's really the most critical thing from our perspective. Yeah, I want to take it even further. The fact that, you know, just like you make assumptions on terms of what things cost and on terms of, you know, the timeline and whatnot, the key assumption for all these value-add people is the rent premium they're going to achieve. If I do yep. this, I will get $250, whatever. They're making, you make an assumption based on data or whatever you can find. The thing that is also amazing about Rise for Date is often you own the property that's a mile to the south, right? Or mile to the north, wherever. So you right. know, last year I did this. I did this exact thing. I made this unit look like this and I got $300 a unit. You can now say, okay, if we're being conservative, we know that we can get 300, but let's just say we got 250, right? And you could still show that models that your models work out, that your deals work out. So that's another, you know, advantage yeah. in terms of owning the 100%. comps. Yeah, it's a great point. We we always shop the comps, right? For every deal, we look at what are renovated units in this immediate area achieving right now. And when we're creating our pro forma or our post renovation rents, we say we want to be right in line or below what's already being achieved today. So we're not being too aggressive. And now you're right. To the we're to the point where we do have a lot of assets in a lot of these sub markets. We're closing it. We're closing a deal um, in two days here, Ben, this week. And four of the comps are properties that we own because we own four properties in a three mile radius. Right. And so you're exactly right. We have real live data that we can tap into and say, are we hitting these rents at these other properties nearby? Yes. For the exact same finish, the exact same materials, we're hitting the same exact rent. We feel like this is conservative. We can hit it on this new property. And it gives us that, you know, that advantage because we have you know, a live data set to reference. Right. And it mitigates, mitigates a lot of the risk in terms of uncertainty, things changing, whatnot. But I guess yep. speaking of risk, you know, you've done a lot of deals in a short amount of time and, you know, all value add. I'm assuming right. that there's some bridge debt and some, you know, floating rate debt taken out in this period. I'm, I'm not sure. If, I don't know the details, but I'm curious, like yeah. what has your approach been to debt in the past? How are you thinking about it now? And how are you able to still close deals now given the difficulty of debt? That's a, that's a, lot, of, a lot of parts of the question, but yeah. I, think you, I think you got it. No, it's a good question, Ben. Yeah, very relevant, obviously. And so, yeah, I mean, right now, there's a lot of sponsors across the country. As we record this the last week of March, 2023, there's a lot of sponsors that are doing capital calls in their deals right now, meaning that they're in trouble and they don't have enough liquidity and they're going back out to their investors to infuse more capital, which is really kind of like the cardinal sin of real estate and, and syndication, right? Like if you have to do a capital call, it's a real black mark on your reputation. And not to say that, you know, nobody studies interest rates going up like this, right? So there's a lot of smart people and good people who are getting hit with this. You know, fortunately, my business partner, Bikron, our CFO, is much smarter than me, right? And he's got a really strong financial analysis background. He's got an economics degree, CPA, worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers, one of the big four accounting firms as a corporate auditor. And so there's a few things that we've always done, Ben, which are which are the reason why we're in good shape and why we've never done a capital call. We don't plan to do any capital calls on any deal in 2023 
or 2024. Okay. And we've done a combination. We've done Freddie Mac fixed rate financing. We've done Freddie Mac floating rate financing, and we've done a lot of debt fund bridge loans. Okay. But the bridge loans that we've done, the difference between us and a lot of groups that are in trouble is that we've typically always been between 60 to 70% loan to value on our bridge loans. Okay. A bridge loan is only troublesome if you take very high leverage. A lot of the groups that are in trouble right now, they took 80 to 85% leverage. Okay. 80, 85% loan to value. We have a few that the highest we ever went was 75%, which is still healthy leverage. Most of them are 60 to 70%. We've always bought three-year interest rate caps on every single deal, okay? No matter what, even when rates were not expected to go up, meaning that we have a ceiling on our interest rate for the first three years, okay? Most people bought one or two-year caps. Groups are doing capital calls this year. And I know this firsthand from people. We're buying a deal from somebody doing this right now in Dallas. He's a syndicator. Their interest rate cap is expiring and they have to infuse capital by a new cap. We've sold 11 deals. Our first interest rate cap doesn't come up. For, for deals that we currently own, our first interest rate cap does not come up until June of 2024, okay? And so we have a lot of runway to increase NOI, refi, and put a new interest rate cap on those deals. So we took low leverage. We have three-year interest rate caps. And one thing that we've done that's pretty unique compared to most sponsors, and again, this is a credit to my partner, Bikron, We've always raised significant cash reserves on the front end of every deal. Okay, so we have plenty of cash reserves that we raise, which is separate from any CapEx or interest reserve. This is just rainy day funds, liquid cash. Okay, and a few years ago, some investors would criticize us. They say, hey, I don't like how you're raising all this extra cash, diluting the investor returns. And we would say, well, that's how we underwrite the deal. If you don't like it, then you know, don't invest with us. And now it's the reason why we're in good shape. Because what's happened, Ben, is that for all these... I would say at least minimum 75% or more of the value add apartments that have been bought in the US the last three years have been debt fund bridge loans. Okay. And that's because they finance your renovation dollars and you go in there, renovate, increase the rents, increase the value. That's how you get the, the returns for investors, right? Well, <clears throat> the problem is for a lot of these people is that they just they just simply have gotten too aggressive by not putting these three-year caps. They have not raised cash reserves at that property level. And so what's happened, even if, even if you have an interest rate cap up here, in your model, no, nobody expected the Fed to increase rates this quickly, right? It's the most aggressive rate hike since the 1980s in the last 12 months. Even the biggest institutions in the country, you know, Goldman Sachs, Blackstone, none of them saw it coming, literally. Okay, so what happened is in your underwriting model, your net operating income is right here, and your, your debt service is right here. And you're always assuming you're renovating, increasing in a line. It always stays above your debt service. So you can cover operating expenses and your debt service and your positively cash flowing. What happened is all of a sudden, debt service shot up to the interest rate cap above your net operating income. There's a ton of deals, and we have a handful of them too right now, that are negatively cash flowing in the short term because your debt service got so high with adjustable rate financing in such a short amount of time that it's not exceeding your, your revenue, your, not, your net operating income. Right, So that, that's why a lot of groups are in trouble. If you don't have cash reserves to cover the Delta, you're in trouble. We have plenty of cash reserves to cover that Delta You know, in the, in the meantime. And then we're still having no issue renovating units and exceeding our pro from rents and closing the gap by increasing NOI, right? So that's the biggest thing is you have to get these deals to positively cash flow. Okay, so a lot of these groups that didn't, that didn't have cash reserves are in major trouble, okay? And that's why they're doing capital calls. So those are the three things. I mean, lower leverage loans, three-year interest rate caps, and then plenty of cash reserves. People say, well, why don't you just do a fixed rate loan, right? Why don't you just do fixed rate financing? You don't have to worry about that. 
The reason we do the debt fund bridge loan, because you get very flexible prepay penalties. Okay. When you do a fixed rate loan, there's always a trade-off there. Okay. When, whether it's a bank or it's Freddie Mac or whomever, when somebody guarantees your interest rate won't change, they have exposure because if interest rates go up in the market, they get hit with that, right? The way that these banks or these lenders cover themselves is they have very nasty prepay penalties called yield maintenance or defeasance, which means they're going to make the entire yield on the term of that loan, regardless of when you sell. So like, it's, it's, let's say it's a 10-year Freddie Mac fixed rate loan. Let's say you sell after year two, you're going to pay the entire yield you would have paid as if you owned it for 10 years. And we have an example. We And I, I know this from, from firsthand experience. We made the mistake of doing a fixed rate loan. It was one of our earliest deals in 2019. We bought a deal for $17 million. We sold it in 2021 after we renovated a bunch of the units. We had a $3 million prepay penalty right off the top. $3 million that comes out of investors' pockets, profits, their pockets and on their profit goes to the investor. I'm sorry, goes to the lender. Okay, so we had to hold that deal for eight months longer than we wanted to just so we can keep renovating, increase the NOI even higher, absorb this, this massive prepay penalty and still net out you know, a two X return to the investor. It would have been a three X return if we had um, you know, that, that flexible prepay. So we do the debt fund floating rate, Ben, because it gives us very flexible prepay penalties. They wanna see 18 months of interest payments typically. After 18 months, you could sell or refi, you have no prepay penalty whatsoever. So that's kind of the, the way that we structure this debt and how we're, we're in good shape right now. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, is it, are you having trouble finding people who to lend in this, in this market? And is, is the rates being as high as they are making it so you can't really pencil out these deals or is it, um, that, you know, you're finding good enough deal, I guess. Yeah. Just walk me through kind of, you know, how is it still working out? Cause you're, you're still doing you're still pretty active compared to many groups that I've, I've seen. No, it's a good question. Good question, man. So um, the debt fund, so basically to give you an idea, like these bridge lenders that people we talk about, most of them are what are called debt funds. A debt fund, most of these are publicly traded REITs. Okay, these are publicly traded companies. They're massive companies. They're also the biggest companies that are buying apartments, but they they basically have, they raise money in these debt funds and they're publicly traded. So they're paying out dividends to investors and they have to deploy this capital, okay, to generate a yield. And so the debt funds have really come back since the beginning of the year. The last 12 weeks, a lot of them are coming back and wanting to deploy capital. And they're cutting down their spread, which is their profit margin on the loan, so that they can lower the all-in rate and incentivize borrowers to borrow money. Okay, so we haven't had any issues really the last 12 weeks, you know, since the beginning of the year in, in finding lenders for these deals. And we've we've closed, I mean, as of this week, we'll have closed three deals this year, January, February, March. Okay, two in Phoenix, one in Dallas. We have two more in Dallas closing by the end of May. So we'll have closed a deal a month by the end of May all with these debt funds. Okay. We've used a few different ones. Um, but basically um, what, what they're doing and what, what we're doing to make these deals work, you talk about interest rates. So what we're doing is we're, we're buying what's called a very low interest rate cap. Okay. So kind of like on a single family home, how you can prepay your interest on the front end or buy down your interest rate. We're effectively doing that. Okay. We'll spend, we'll underwrite two to $3 million on the front end as a closing cost that we're going to raise from investors. And we're going to buy a cap at 5% max interest rate for the first three years. Okay. So no matter what happens in the world with the Fed or the treasuries or the index, our interest rate cannot exceed 5% for the first three years. Okay. Even if interest rates right now are 8%, cause we're basically buying that cap on the front end. Okay, so we're engineering, we're effectively engineering a fixed rate loan 
but we also have flexible prepay penalties. That's how we make these deals work right now. And so we're using very conservative assumptions with 0% organic rent growth in year one, very conservative pro forma post-renovation rents, you know, conservative vacancy numbers. And we raise the amount of that cap on the front end. And if the deal still pencils with us raising that, that cap, the money to buy the cap as closing costs, then we'll do the deal if we can set up those returns and it feels if we feel good about it. Whereas if I do a fixed rate loan, I you can you literally cannot underwrite yield maintenance prepay because it changes daily. It changes based on where interest rates are at, right? And so I would rather just bite the bullet on the front end and know that I've prepaid the interest. I can model this out where my interest rate will not go over 5%. The returns I'm showing you are assuming the max rate. And then I have flexible prepay on the back end so I can get out of that loan and sell or refi maximize investor returns upon a capital event. That's kind of how we're underwriting these deals. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's like, it's it's really interesting that you functionally give yourself more certainty by doing a fixed rate loan, or sorry, by doing a floating rate loan with interest rate cap because the prepayment is so nasty, like the fees, and, like the whole idea you have to buy them a bond at whatever yeah. price to replace. Yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous. Exactly it makes, right. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. More certainty, and we can model that out, right? You, you, I can't underwrite yield maintenance. Um, it's impossible. There's no way to do it. So yeah, this this gives us more certainty, and we feel like what we're showing investors is more accurate, you know, because it's it's concrete assumptions that we know won't change. Absolutely. So I want to make sure we have time for the lightning round, but there's something yeah. another amazing thing um, that Rise Forty Eight has. Uh, I've heard you talk about. And I want to hear what the status is on this this uh, um this aspect of your business. I know that you have this idea. The way I understand it is a perpetual 1031 exchange. That if you get into one of your deals, that when you sell that, you're hoping to 1031 that into another deal. And so essentially, let's say I don't want to put numbers, but you know, essentially every time you sell a deal, you double your money, and maybe you can exit sometime. I, you know, I want right. you to explain it. It's 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 pretty yeah. innovative. Yeah. No. Good. Good question, Ben. Yeah. So we like to utilize a 1031 exchange, right? And there's it's not as common in syndications, I think, because it's tough to execute mechanically. Um, but we've done seven of them now. Okay. So we've sold 11 deals. We've done seven 1031 exchanges. The other four were just earlier deals. You weren't really thinking of doing it at that time, to be honest. But ever since every time that we've decided we want to do a 1031, we've done it. Okay. And, and the way we've been able to do it is we've actually had our replacement property already under contract before we actually sold the first property. And so it allows us to, you know, really time it up right. But Basically, the whole premise is, is let's say you invest 100K, for example. I mean, our minimum is 50K, but I'll use 100K as a, an example. Let's say you invest 100K um, into a deal and you have a 7% preferred cash on cash. So I owe you 7% a year on that 100K. Let's say we sell the deal in you know two years. I'm, I'm not projecting this, right? We've done this in reality, but I'm not projecting this going forward. We sold the deal in two years and we double the money. You can have the option to participate in the 1031 exchange if you want to, which means we take all the sales proceeds from the first deal and we use them to buy the new deal. And as an investor, if you want to participate, you're going to roll the initial 100K that you invested into the new deal. You're going to roll the 100K of profit that you just made into the new deal. You're going to defer the capital gains tax. You don't pay the capital gains tax. And then your preferred return of 7% is now on your new investment basis of 200K instead of 100K. So you grow the money quickly, you pay no capital gains tax, you drastically increase your monthly cash flow because your preferred return is on a larger basis. And then because of the depreciation of these deals, the passive losses, our investors pay virtually 
no taxes on their monthly cash flow distributions. And I'll give the I'll give the disclaimer: I'm not a CPA. I'm not giving tax advice. You can never guarantee that. But we've never seen any of our investors have to pay taxes on their monthly cash flow distributions. So it can be a, a very powerful vehicle to grow that money. Well, let's say that's after two years, right? Let's say another three years later, your basis is 200K and we sell the deal again and we double it again. Well, now your 200K becomes 400K. You pay no capital gains tax. Now you're getting a 7% pref on 400K. Your cash flow is immense. You pay no tax on the cash flow. So it's a very powerful tax, tax efficient way. And like you said, Ben, our goal is to never break that 1031 chain, right? So if you invest 100K, my goal is I 1031 exchange that thing six or seven times the next 30 years, um, and you can keep rolling it. And the way that the, the tax law stands now is that, like, let's say you exchange this thing for 30 years, you die, you can pass that ownership interest onto your kids, and they get what's called a step up in basis, meaning that they can just cash out of the whole thing. They don't have to pay any of the tax because it's the next generation. This is what some of the wealthiest families have been doing for generations. Okay. And so this is a very powerful vehicle. On the flip side, our investors also have the option to cash out upon any sale. Okay. So you don't have to participate. Like if I, if you invest hundred K, we doubled it. You can say, I, I need the money back or I want out for whatever reason. That's fine. We'll give you your initial hundred K back, give you hundred K of profit. You'll pay a capital gains tax on the profit. As of right now, I think that if you make more than 500 K it's a 20% tax. If you make less than 500 K in a year, then it's 15%, but you pay the capital gains tax and then you know, you do whatever you need to do. So you have all that money. So we, we do like to do that strategy. Um, we feel like that's the most tax efficient thing for investors. And a lot of investors like to do that. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I did the quick math that, you know, in your story, when you got to 400 of a 400 K, K basis, that you'll be getting $28,000 as 7% prep, you'd be 20, you'll be getting $28,000 a year, which essentially meant like, if you had that for four years, you would have had your whole basis back. If you had not already gotten it from from you know right. from before, so it's like you're Your essentially in these deals for no money. Yeah, it can be very powerful. And then take it a step further. Let's say we do those two rounds in that example, right? And your basis is 400k. Um, well, you know, let's say that second round. Well, let's say after let's say you you sold the first one for after two years, right? And then three years later, you're at the end of year five. You're like, you know what? We don't know if the 1980s value add makes sense. Maybe we should go into like a class A apartment building with no deferred maintenance. We could 1031 to that. Your basis is 400K. And we could then, you know, wait a year or two and then do like a cash out refi. If we can increase NOI enough to a cash out refi, return 50 to 100% of your capital back to you, you get 200 to 400K of cash back. You pay no capital gains tax on that because it, we, we didn't sell the deal. It's just return of capital. And when we do a refi, you don't get diluted. You still have your same ownership percentage in the deal. It's just that you have little to none of your own money in the deal. So you get this big cash chunk back tax-free, and then you, we hold that deal long-term and you continue to get those cash flow distributions. So that's the powerful thing too, is if you sell, grow the money, 1031 exchange, do a refi, return capital back, you're not paying tax on that. And again, I'm not a CPA. This is not tax advice. Um, consult your, your tax professional, but these are the type of strategies that we're trying to do. Yeah, it's incredible. And it just shows that Ross Rodier is looking long-term, you know, that you're really developing relationships with investors and not just, you know, trying to <laughs> make your money on fees or, you know, just trying to right. flip your deals and, um, you know, just try to, you're not playing musical chairs, you know, you're really right. for long exactly. It's a long-term approach. Yeah. It's a long-term true wealth building approach. Like we want long-term relationships with our investors and that's how we look at it. Awesome. Well, um, you ready for the lightning round? 
Go, lightning. Yeah, I'm ready. All right, so starting easy, what superpower would you want if you have any superpower? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I feel like if I didn't have to sleep, I could get so much more done, be more so much more productive. Just no sleep. Just give me like on on like endless energy. Endless energy. <laughs> I could just be even more productive. And it's it's pretty characteristic. You you know, you seem to be everywhere all at once. Maybe you need super speed too. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, speed. That'd be helpful too. Yeah, super speed. <laughs> so what's your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of different books. Um, I mean, I'm reading, I'm reading a book right now, which I really like that it's called the daily laws by Robert green. So people who have read Robert green, he's written like 48 laws of power mastery, you know, 48, 33 laws of war, all these different good books I've already listened to, but this, the daily laws gives you like a summary of a lot of these things, which just kind of gives you insight into all of the, I don't know, it's, it's a lot of different, like, um, the political aspects of just life and dealing with people and business and all these things to be aware of and self-reflection and self-awareness. So I think those are, it's a good book. Anything that's Robert Greene, I think is, can be very valuable. Yeah. I should check it out. I've been going to Aristotle for, for that stuff, but it's, uh, there you go. yeah, that's right. that's right. You're the philosophy guy. Okay. That's right. I should be asking <laughs> you, I should be asking you, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Aristotle's ethics quotes, is definitely he quotes, he quotes Aristotle a lot. So you would like I'm, it. I'm sure. Yeah, no, I'm definitely gonna check it out. It's gonna be cool to get a, you know, a digested version too. I mean, <laughs> it's really yeah. hard to be the one that tries to digest this, you know, yeah. wisdom. I, but I know. I bet. <laughs> so what motivates you to continue every day? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I just like what I do. I mean, we have a lot of fun doing this. For me, it's the challenge and it's the competition. Like I've never been able to really get motivated by money. Like money is a nice thing, you know, it's a kind of like a residual benefit. But for me, it's like the the challenge and the, the, the competition and kind of having like a chip on my shoulder, like something to prove. Right. So it's like, people have said, Oh, you guys grew, but you're lucky because the market is strong. You never been through a downturn. Well, we look at this downturn as a good challenge to prove to everybody that we can get through a downturn and, and, you know, basically perform better than our competition. So we're always trying to get bigger. We, we don't want to get complacent or satisfied because I think when you get complacent, you start to get soft, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically so we want to just you know keep grinding and keep growing it awesome so what advice would you want to give to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps yeah i would say like don't take crap from anybody like don't listen to anybody who tells you you can't do it because most of them have never even done what you're trying to do so they're not even a credible resource and none of them are going to actually put in the work that it takes for you to get to where you need to be you're the only one to put that work in right so, yeah, I mean, I would, I would just say like, don't listen to people. I think a lot of people get caught up in trying to find a mentor or advice. I didn't have any real estate mentor. Okay. I didn't have anybody. Any, I, I actually tried to seek people out who would discourage me. Right. And actually I would, if I would have listened to him, I wouldn't have even done this. Um, and so I think that you need to just kind of try to laser focus on what it is that you want to do. And that's easier said than done. It's tough initially, but try to like really limit it down to like, what is your goal? How do you get there? And just keep attacking. And it's going to take time. It's going to be frustrating, discouraging. You know, I like mentally and emotionally quit several times, but then it's like you wake up the next day and you're like, well, I'm going to go back at it. You know what I mean? You just kind of keep attacking. So yeah, I would just say like, just relentlessly pursue it and and be patient, but you know, don't let other people tell you, you can't do it. Yeah, that's powerful. I appreciate that. Um, Since I put you on a spot, I want to give you a chance for revenge. So what's one question you have for me? Oh yeah. All right. Um, well, what's your favorite book, Ben? You read a lot. I do. I do read a lot. A lot. Okay. So my favorite book that's uh favorite 
You have it's not. Yeah, yeah, it's hard, right? I'll, I'll give you what's the one that's helped me the most. Okay, my favorite book for like entertainment value is um. Entertainment. Uh, I'll give you different categories. Entertainment value. What is the most entertaining? Uh, Paralandra. It's a uh, it's a book. The second book in in um the cosmic series by C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote Narnia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah. yeah. So it's like this guy essentially goes to uh, I don't even know if I if it's ruining it. He, guy goes to Venus and it's right. like the Garden of Eden and it's like a lot of like like there's a lot of philosophy in it but like a lot of like theology too and like a lot of allusions to you know ethics and yeah just like the most important things to everyone it's it's beautiful cool. it's, yeah no I like that I like that that's legit I'll have to check that one out no I like CSS I haven't I haven't heard of that so it sounds great over um audio too on on audible like it's a good good uh narrator but um so that's my that's my favorite uh my favorite book yeah. for for just that i love but i guess my favorite uh my favorite helpful book yeah what's your yeah. favorite development uh no my favorite um i guess this is, is this probably so i thought this was a lightning round ben i mean what's taking so long <laughs> okay 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 so um the philebus by uh by plato it's, I think, okay. one of the most beautiful. Sure. Yeah. See, the reason yeah. I, I got stuck is it's also for entertainment and like beauty and like I love sure. it for that, but also I learned so yeah. much. Yeah. It, so, okay, that's good. Yeah, that's good, man. All right, cool. Awesome. Well, lastly, where can people find out more about you if they want to learn more about you? And um, yeah. yeah. No, thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, um, you can find us on our website, rise48equity.com, R I S E 48equity.com. You can set up a call with me if you're interested in learning about how to invest with us on the website, just set up a call through there. Email me, Zach, Z-A-C-H at rise48equity.com. Awesome. Well, I encourage everyone to check it out and reach out to Zach if you're interested. There's a lot more questions I wish we could have answered, but maybe uh, next time. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll but, do a round, uh, two. Do a round, round two. two. For sure. I can squeeze you in sometime, so we'll, yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, like in a few years when you have an open slot, we'll get around to it. Awesome. Well, I uh, appreciate it. Thanks again for coming on the show. Zach and everyone, keep making milestones. Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support and keep making milestones. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.